Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We are looking at the entirety of this psalm. This psalm is obviously very significant. It is a royal psalm. It is a psalm of David. You may notice that perhaps in your Bible, under the heading, it may simply say, Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed, and not have any indication of it being a psalm of David. But according to the New Testament in in Acts chapter 4, they attribute this psalm to David as they quote from it, which we will look at as well. So this is a royal psalm. This is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm of of the Lord Jesus, a psalm that, that emphasizes his reign, his universal reign. Even as the nations rage and as they rebel, we see the response of the one who sits on his cosmic throne as he looks over the earth in man's foolish attempts to rebel. This is a psalm that is of great comfort to the people of God and should be to the people of God, as it was to the early church. That's why they quote it in in Acts chapter 4, because it was a great comfort to them. And it should be to us today, because there are great reminders here in this psalm. As we see things going on and we get upset and we get frustrated with how the the nation is going or the things that are happening, this psalm is what what steadies us, what, what helps us to be grounded once more in the knowledge of God. Knowing these things brings comfort and strength to face the world and to continue to establish the reign of the Lord among the nations. To establish the truth that it is Christ who rules, not man, not any particular uh, form of the culture, any particular leader. It is Christ who reigns. So no matter the present situation, no matter the circumstance, whether it's on a smaller scale individual lives in view of that, or on a grander scale looking at the nation or the world as a whole, God is not hindered by any foolish rebellion of man. He will bring to pass what he has promised. And just as we just sung that the promise of God to Christ is the nations. They will be his. And however we view that, as far as our eschatology, the end is the same. Christ will have the nations. So let us be encouraged by this psalm. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what it teaches us of the great hope that we have in Christ. That at your appointed time all things will be set right. That no longer will there, there be the rebellion of man and the nations being in an uproar. But Father, we look forward to the day in which Christ will rule and reign and establish justice in the earth. We pray that as we work our way through this passage, that you would open our hearts and our minds to take in what, we, what the, the Scripture says, and that it would be applied to us by the Spirit of God, that we would be able to carry out even more so with greater excitement, with greater determination, uh, what it is that you call us to, uh, to be a light and, and to spread the gospel of our Lord, who is the great King. We love you, and we give you all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. You know, it is kind of nice when you have water and you have coffee to choose from. It's a good balance. <clears throat> you know, in this psalm, again, this psalm is attributed to David, according to Acts chapter 4. It is, it is written there that just as the Lord had spoken through David concerning uh, what happened in Jerusalem, what happened with, with Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathering together against the Lord, putting him to death. That's how the New Testament applies this passage, at least um, verse 2. But it does acknowledge that David is the one who penned this. And as some commentators point out, even though this is something that has an immediate application to David himself, as David is king of Israel, David is, has conquered a number of the surrounding uh, nations, the neighbors that are there. And actually, you read this in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10, that he conquered the Philistines, he conquered the Ammonites, the Arameans, the Moabites. He has conquered them all, and he subdued them all. And so perhaps what is in view, is at least for David is that these particular nations that he has conquered are trying to rebel. And so he is reflecting upon uh, God's uh, appointing him to be king, of God being with him as he rules and he reigns. And we'll look at another passage of scripture that describes that, even describing David uh, as the firstborn, uh, that the Lord calls him his firstborn. So there are a number of things in this psalm that absolutely apply to David and David's immediate context. But this is one of the psalms as well that is applied in the New Testament specifically to the Lord Jesus. The writer of Hebrews does. The disciples do in Acts chapter 4. Again in Acts chapter 13. 
this psalm is in view in a number of passages, and it's applied specifically to the Lord Jesus. As some commentators point out, you have David that begins asking the question about the nations. And then from the perspective of the people of God, as they're viewing this as a messianic psalm, you have three others that begin to speak in the psalm. You have the Father who speaks, you have the Son who speaks, and then you have the Holy Spirit who speaks. As they are addressing not only the rebellion that is going on, but the Son addressing the Father's promise to Him, the Holy Spirit calling the nations to pay homage to the Son. So there are four particular sections to this psalm. And again, we want to keep the immediate context, but the New Testament applies this to Christ specifically. So looking at this, we have David who is the one asking the questions here in the beginning. The nations are in rebellion. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It's very interesting that this word for devising is the same word that's used in Psalm 1 of those who meditate on the law of God. Same word. Those who love the Lord are those who meditate on the law of God day and night. Those who are in rebellion against the Lord are, are meditating or imagining how they may rebel and, and cast, cast away his restraints from them. And that's what's in view. And for David, these surrounding nations are trying to figure out how they can remove his rule from them as he has conquered them. And again, you read that in Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 8 and chapter 10. Instead of submitting to David's rule, they desire to stand together and oppose him. But the text makes clear that it's not just David that they are taking counsel together against. The nations that are in an uproar are taking their counsel against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed. So even as the surrounding nations are, are trying to cast off the restraints of David, but not only David, but of David's God, Yahweh. As you look at this, and David is pinning these words. David is perhaps reflecting upon God's appointment of him to be the ruler in Israel, to be the king, that God would be with him. None of his enemies would be able to stand before him. One of the Psalms that describes uh, some of those things is in Psalm 89. And I'll begin reading in verse 19. <clears throat> And this will give us some perspective of, of perhaps where David is writing from here. But in Psalm 89, beginning of verse 19, reading through verse 37. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. 
I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. <clears throat> so you have this particular psalm, Psalm 89, that is establishing David's rule, the Lord appointing him. <clears throat> you see that, that very close relationship that David has even with the Lord, that he calls upon him and says, My father, and the Lord says of him, This is my firstborn. So that language, plus where none of his enemies will be able to afflict him, all of that perhaps is what David has in mind as he comes to Psalm 2. And I know that we all know this, but just for the sake of reminding us, uh, just because this is Psalm 2 does not mean it was the second psalm ever written. So just so we know that probably the oldest psalm, uh, the very first one that was ever written was probably Psalm 90 because it is a psalm of Moses. So just keep those things in mind. <clears throat> but this is perhaps some of the backdrop as, as David is penning Psalm 2, remembering what the Lord had said, remembering the covenant that the Lord had made with him in 2 Samuel 7, that of his descendants, uh, one would come who is a greater son, we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, uh, the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and applies them both to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. So here is David remembering this, reflecting upon this, uh, reminding himself of the decree of God, that God has established him as king, his king in Zion. But you also have in these verses, as we've been talking about, a greater perspective of things concerning Christ, specifically of Christ, because that's how, again, the New Testament applies this. So when we are looking at the very words of David as, as David is pending this, that the nations are in an uproar and the peoples are devising a vain thing, they're imagining a foolish thing, an empty thing. And the kings of the earth, these are the leaders of the earth. They are taking their stand. They're gathering together. The rulers are taking counsel against Yahweh and against his anointed. And what they are desiring in verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In the same way that the local neighbors of David were trying to put off the restraints of his rule over them, so the nations do, even Christ. They come against the Lord, Yahweh. They come against his anointed, the Lord Jesus. And again, this psalm, or this particular verse, is applied in Acts chapter 4, by the disciples in reference to what happened in Jerusalem with Christ. As the disciples 
are ordered, Peter and John specifically, are ordered not to preach Christ anymore. They were beaten, and then they were sent out. Verse 23, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, what, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So this is applied to what had occurred with Christ and the nations being gathered together against him. Casting off the restraints of the Lord, putting to death the Son of God, and even thereafter, as as the apostles are going out into the nations, that the nations nations are still raging against the Lord. Why? Well, if you look, of course, we can go back to Adam. We know that Adam fell, all his posterity fallen, sin entered into the world, all mankind is plunged into sin. But through God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham was the nations are going to be blessed. In you, the nations are going to be blessed. That promise went to Isaac in chapter 22. In you, the nations are going to be blessed. It went to Jacob in in Genesis 26. In you, the nations are going to be blessed. So that you have the people of Israel who were to be the vehicle of, of, of shining the light to the Gentiles. That they receive the covenants and the promises. All the things that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks in Romans. That the nations themselves, the Gentile nations were all in darkness. Because it was only Israel at this particular time that God had entered into covenant with. And had established relationship with. Truly revealed himself to them. Given them his law. And so the nations were in darkness, raging against uh, the knowledge of God that they had, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as we read in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but became futile in their speculations. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man and a four-footed beast. So the nations rage against the true knowledge of God. The nations continue to rage, even in the time of Christ. But something changed. Something was different then. That when Christ was ascending into heaven and he gives the great commission, he says, all authority is mine. It is all mine. Go make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them and teach them obedience. And so as the gospel then goes out into the nations and it's going into the darkness that you have the nations raging once again, trying to cast off the restraint. The very thing that natural man does even in our own day. Especially in our own day, because you you look at our own nation specifically, 
which, is, which was really founded upon what we understand from, as far as, as, as the law of God, what we understand from the Old Testament is what many of our laws today were established upon. It is very amazing. I mean, when you go back and you look at the law of God, you read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're seeing the very things that God had said to establish the civil order of Israel, and then you look in our own nation and the laws there, you're like, wow, that's, that's, what, that's what was happening here. You had the great revivals that occurred throughout the New England colonies right before the nation itself would be established so that the nation will be established upon the word of God. And man in his rebellion even now, what is he trying to do? The rulers are trying to take counsel together against the Lord and again against his anointed trying to tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords trying to remove his restraint in the restraint of his law, the restraint of his standard. That is what natural man does. And what he has done, even as the gospel has pierced into the darkness, into places in which only evil dwelt. And by God's grace and his power through the gospel, people were transferred from the kingdom of, or excuse me, from the domain of darkness into the light of God's marvelous Son. Now, we see some of these things today, and it makes us maybe a little anxious. It, it upsets us at times because we want to see things changing very quickly. We want to see God just press the button, as we've talked about a number of times. Okay, look at what they're doing. Press the button. Bring this thing done. Just show them that you are who you are. And maybe we do that because we think that nothing is happening. We think that they're, they're gaining a foothold. You know, there was one particular person, and I've shared this with you before, who was talking about a particular business that was coming to our area kind of an immoral kind of a store. And one thing that she had said to me was, I mean, we really just need to pray. We just, our country needs prayer. Our, our, our towns need prayer because it's like Satan is gaining a foothold. And you just want to think, no, no, no. You're giving the enemy way too much credit. That's not how things are. But again, it's because we think that things aren't, aren't progressing fast enough or nothing is changing just yet. But what is, what is God's response? These are the things that we think on an on a earthly level. I mean, what is it that God thinks? And here's the Father's response in verses 4 to 6. And this is, this is God's response to the surrounding nations around David. It's the same. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. They come against Yahweh, as it says in verse 2. And then in, in, in the latter part of verse 4, it says, The Lord, capital L, little O, little R, little D, Adonai. Adonai scoffs at them, the master the sovereign, the sovereign. 
He laughs at them and he scoffs at them. One writer says this, and this is a little lengthy, but just bear with me. Speaking on this, this very verse of the Lord laughing and scoffing at the rebellion of man. He said, that is God's answer. God simply sits back on his throne and fills the universe with peal after peal of terrible, spine-tingling laughter. Men are such fools. How can puny man hope to win against Almighty God? Modern man is like the French revolutionary who had helped storm the Bastille. He had scaled the cathedral of Notre Dame, torn the cross from the spire and dashed it into fragments on the pavement of Paris far below. He said to a peasant, we're going to pull down all that reminds you of God. Citizen, was the calm reply, then pull down the stars. As though man who has successfully orbited some hardware in space using material God has supplied and who has put a feeble footprint on the moon as though Man can compete with a God who has orbited a hundred million galaxies as though man who has solved some of the subtleties of the atom and managed to scare himself half to death in the process can compete with a God who stokes the nuclear fires of a billion stars. No wonder he sits in the heavens and simply laughs. Man, for all his technology and talents, for all his science and skill, for all his inventions, is still man. Mere mortal man, and God is God, eternal, uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, infallible, holy, high, and lifted up, worshipped by countless angel throngs. God laughs at men for, such, for being such fools. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That's a good way to sum up why the Lord would laugh at such rebellion. These mere grasshoppers down here, oh, they gathered in a little cluster against me. What is that to the Almighty God? The one who stokes the fires of a billion stars is going to be hindered or made to be anxious over mere mortal man? The Lord laughs at them. He scoffs at them. And then the laughter will turn into fury because he will terrify them in his fury because God is God and man is not. But this is the Lord's response. So what does that mean? When you're looking at man's rebellion, his foolish attempts of rebelling against the Almighty, and the Almighty just simply laughs at him, what, is, what does he say? He says, I have installed my king, and the I there is very emphatic. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, you little grasshoppers may gather together in order to try to thwart the restraint or thwart the will of the Almighty, but I, I installed my king already. 
And what is the implication there? There's nothing you can do about it. Those are the very things that Nebuchadnezzar learned. None can thwart his will. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. So the Lord has sworn. The Lord has decreed. That his king will sit upon his holy mountain. I've installed him there is the idea. And we know that when our Lord had ascended into heaven. That there's the coronation of the Lord that is described within the scriptures. Of this, this very truth is described that we may pull back the curtain a little bit and to see what happened at the ascension of Christ. And one of those passages, as we've discussed before, is in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, <clears throat> you have the vision of the four beasts, which represent four empires. And then we read in verse 13 of chapter 7 of Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And just as a little side note, just recognize this is quoted in the New Testament and doesn't even mean the same thing there. It means exactly what it means here. He's not coming to earth. This is not a passage in which he is coming to earth. This is a passage in which he is coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. He's going to the Father. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then one of our favorite passages in Revelation 5. Revelation 5 describing the coronation of the Son of God as he had finished his, his work. Chapter 5 and verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I, sh I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the coronation of Christ. After he ascended into heaven, just as what Daniel is describing in chapter 7. We acknowledge that when Christ ascended into heaven and he says, All authority is mine and go get the nations that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he is ruling and reigning even now. When he came and he began to preach, what was it he was saying? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when he ascended into heaven, he sat down as king. Ruling and reigning over the nations. The Lord installed his king upon Zion, the place in which God placed his name where God dwelt, his holy mountain. So this is the father's response. He installed his king and there's nothing that the nations can do as it as it says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, and there's nothing that the nations can do. But then you have the response of the Son, verses 7 to 9, because this is the anointed one who's speaking now, the king. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as we looked in Psalm 89, the immediate uh, understanding of this for David was that the Lord had decreed to him that, that his descendants would sit upon the throne. And God was faithful to bring it to pass. That David would cry out to the Lord, my father, and that David would be the firstborn of the Lord. But again, this is quoted in Acts chapter 13, speaking of Christ. Christ says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this is what, this is what the, God the Son is saying that the Father said to him. As he is decreed. This very thing, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You know, when you look back in Matthew chapter 4, when our Lord is being tempted by Satan, in verse 8 it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, 
Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord our God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You know, how is it, how was it that Satan could be so bold not only to call the Son of God to worship him, but to say, basically, all these are mine. If this is what you've came for, you can have them. Only do this one thing. You know, even in what Satan is saying there gives an understanding of what Christ had come for. Christ came for the nations. But this wasn't the way in which he was going to gather them. But Satan understood, at least to an extent, what he was there for. It's not Satan that would give the nations to the Son, but it's the Father who says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. They're all going to be yours. And that's why Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go get the nations. Up until that point, you could say that the nations were under the rule of Satan because they were in darkness. Until Christ completed his finished work and ascended into heaven. And when you look at and understand that we have some differing views of eschatology. But when you're looking at Revelation 20 and you're seeing the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, it is a very specific binding that he should deceive the nations no longer until the thousand years were completed. And you have Jesus that says in Matthew 12 that he's binding the strong man. This is, this is how I'm able to cast out demons because I'm binding the strong man. How can one enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you, he says. So Satan has been, and you look at all these passages of scripture, as Satan is bound in Matthew 12, that he saw Satan falling as a star in, in Luke chapter 10. That John says in John chapter 12, now the time has come for the ruler of this world to be cast down. And then the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 that, he, that Christ rendered him power, powerless who had the power of death. 1 John 3, for this reason did the Son of God come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. These things happened at Christ's first coming. He made an open show of the principalities and powers through his resurrection according to Paul in Colossians 2. Satan has been cast down from his high place as ruler over the nations. And through the power of the gospel, the people are being converted in all the nations. And that's what also the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace 
and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. And interestingly, he sums up the book of Romans saying something very similar in chapter 16. The nations is what, he's came, what he came for. This is the prize for which he died, as we sung. It's the nations. And Satan being bound as to respect of not being able to deceive the nations. That's the binding of Satan. That's exactly what it says in Revelation 20. He cannot hinder the progress of the gospel. And you look at the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ spans the globe. Every time someone is converted, the kingdom, the kingdom has a new citizen. And there is no greater kingdom than his. He sits on his cosmic throne. And he rules and he reigns. He was installed as king in his ascension. And since then, he brings about the faith, the obedience of the nations, which is also what we read. And I know we're going through these kind of fast, but you can jot these down. This is also what we read in Isaiah 9. The great passage that is often quoted at Christmas the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in battle in the battle tumult, in cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This began when the king took his seat. Because when the child is given, the child is born and the son is given, the government rests on his shoulders he sits on the throne of his father, David, as he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. And he establishes within his kingdom justice and righteousness. And sometimes that's difficult for us to see, but we read that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It will happen. So the king is seated. The king will tell of the decree of his father that the nations will be his inheritance to the very ends of the earth. He will judge between the nations. He will, as you read in verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We probably should, just should have kept a bookmark in Isaiah. 
Because Isaiah 2 says, in the beginning of verse 2, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You know what that implies? That implies that as the king, as the law is going forth into the nations, that the king who is seated on his throne is judging between the nations and rendering decisions, which implies that sinners are here. Sinners are still here. If he judges between them. He shall break them with a rod of iron. And shatter them like earthenware. The law will go forth to the nations. And actually as you read. In Isaiah 42. And you just jot this down. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4. That he will establish justice in the nations. And the coastlands are waiting for his law. You know how his law comes to the nations? Through the gospel. (laughs) Because it's the gospel that declares the kingship of Christ to the nations that are in darkness. You have the response of the Father, the response of the Son, and the response of the Holy Spirit. And I'll try to move a little, little quicker through that. Verses 10 to 12. You have another that speaks. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you have the Father responding. You have the Son who responds above the Father's decree concerning Him and the nations. And then you have the next one who begins to call the nations to pay homage to the Son. To worship the Son. To take refuge in the Son. Now this is very interesting here. Because the kings of the earth are called to worship the Son. This is what we do in the call of the gospel. We, go, we take the gospel to not only the nations as a whole, but to individual people, and we tell them the very same thing. Take refuge in the Son. Believe upon the Son. Take refuge in Him. We tell them as well that when they believe upon the Son, that the wrath of God that, abide, that did abide on them is gone. And he's saying, do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. Take refuge in him, O kings of the earth. And this is something that the New Testament tells us as well. When you're looking in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, I'm, pray for all people, for kings and all who are in authority. For this is good and right in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. 
And looking at the context, as we've talked talked before, because he begins to give categories of men, the implication is all kinds of men. He's the savior of all kinds of men, whether they're kings, those in authority, those who are not. So we call the kings of the earth to worship the sun, to take refuge in the sun, pay homage to the sun. Now this is something that is, there's always a debate when it comes to things like this. How does this occur? What is it that we say to the civil realm of the world? Well, you have what's called two-kingdom theology or two-kingdom doctrine. You have one particular two-kingdom doctrine, which is right according to the Scripture, but then you have the other two-kingdom doctrine, which is very confusing because it says that Christ is king, right? Christ rules in the hearts of his people and in his church. But when it comes to the silver realm... We don't say to them, thus says the Lord. We say to them, you need to be governed by natural law, maybe the second half of the, of the Ten Commandments. That's exactly what they're saying. Man should depend upon, man in his natural state should depend upon natural law and the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. That's not what he's saying here. I love what Vody Bauckham says. And the, the idea there is, is because when you go into the civil realm and you begin to say, thus says the Lord, well, well, they don't believe in your God. So you have to glean what you can from natural law. That isn't working very well. And not only that, but natural law is going to agree with biblical law because it's one God who is giving law. And the laws aren't different. But Vodi Bakum says that when you go out to battle and you draw out your sword and your enemy says to you, well, I don't believe in your sword. So like Vodi Bakum says, what, let me put that up for you since you don't believe in it. No. What do you do? You cut them. You stand before whoever and you say, the Lord says. When you stand, this is the thing, this is the very thing that we do and this is why it's so confusing. Because natural law isn't going to give us a, a, an objective standard to, to, to be founded upon when we say abortion is murder. Homosexuality is a sin. Transgenderism is a sin. It calls into question even the good nature of God because you say he made a mistake. So what do we, what do we base that upon? Well, we hope that you see through natural law that this is wrong. No, we say God's word says, the scriptures say, because that is the objective, a foundation of what is right and what is not. So we stand before all, whether those that are in authority, we call the nation to repentance. This isn't to say, as the the two kingdom critics would say, that you're, you're like wanting the church to rule the state. No. We want the church to be the church and to take care of the religious affairs of men who have the keys of the kingdom, and we want the state to be the state. You're called God's deacon in Romans chapter 13, 
And you are to rule and govern righteously according to the standard of the God who appointed you. So we're saying you rule and reign according to God's standard. We will take care of the people of God and spread the gospel according to God's standard. There is one kingdom. There is not two kingdoms simultaneously fighting for land or fighting for the, the, the majority of people. There is one kingdom. And that's what Jesus acknowledges in Matthew 13. The field is the world. The kingdom of heaven is like a field. And the man went to go sow seed. What does he say? The field is the world. There is one king, one kingdom. You have the sphere of the family, which is to be governed. You have the sphere of the church. You have the sphere of the civil realm. One king and all govern accordingly as Christ is commanded in his word. So we say to the nations and we say to the kings and we say to the governors, do homage to the son. Lest he become angry and you perish. Take refuge in him. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So when you look at, look at the things of today and you maybe you get a little downtrodden or disheartened. There's so many things going on that we can point to and we say, but this and this and this. But what the psalmist says here is the king is on his throne. The king is ruling and reigning. And the king is putting all his enemies under his feet. And he will continue to do so. So be encouraged. Man's rebellion is nothing but foolishness. That's all it is. It's a foolish endeavor. They can do nothing to thwart God's rule or his decree that the Son will have the nations and that he will establish justice in the earth. Your king is putting all his enemies under his feet. I'll read this and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be abolished that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this portion of your word. And thank you for the great encouragement that we have in it. 
regardless of how we view the end, we all can rest assured in this, that Christ will put his enemies under his feet and that Christ will establish justice and that Christ will shatter all the kings, those in rebellion against him. Father, let us not lose heart over anything that may go on in the nation or in the world. You have established your king. Regardless of man trying to put off the restraints of, of your law, of you, let us be encouraged. You're not pacing back and forth. What is man to you, the Almighty? We pray, Father, that you would give us courage to proclaim the lordship and the kingship of Christ Jesus, to walk accordingly, and, Father, to rejoice in, in this very thing of, of the king redeeming us and the king setting all things right. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention.